0: Well, you know, it is a very well-done show. The name makes sense in the context of the show, but I found it very off-putting and was definitely a reason that I didn't watch it since like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a trope. Right. Of You know, a sexist, misogynistic trope. Um, but it's completely written and... Uh, starring this woman, Rachel Bloom, who is, like, a musical theater. She's just, like, obsessed with musical theater. I don't know that she's done much, like, professional live theater, Um, but she has lived her whole life as a uh, woman experiencing mental health issues, and it's caused, like, a lot of relationship problems for her, and she just totally turned it into a show, and just poured her whole soul into it. And so, it's—I think it's like four seasons mm. of this roller coaster show, analyzing uh, mental health issues and relationships, and finding yourself, and finding friends, and like passions to try to replace this sometime need for um, a significant other that maybe isn't healthy for you. And it's just, it's a really well done. Um, it's super clever. Um, highly recommend. Just a poorly. And it's done now.
1: Just a poorly executed hook of a title.
0: Yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense for the show because like she is a crazy ex-girlfriend. She is literally crazy because of her mental health problems. So it's kind of like taking that term, like that term should not be applied to most of the people that it's applied to. Um, But yeah, it was a little off-putting of a title. But it's a really wonderful show, and it's all done. I know it can be scary to start binging new shows now if there's (laughs) no end in sight. You're like, how much am I signing up for here? Or uh, what if the ending is terrible and then it'll make me hate the rest of the series?
2: Or what if they but cancel it's good it?
0: through to the end. <laughs> yeah. Or what if they cancel?
2: So I watched the uh, Dolly Parton documentary on Netflix called Here I Am. And I thought it was awesome. I am so impressed by her. Um, and I wish that I had given uh, her a second look because as you learn in the documentary her look is an intentional put on uh where she said in the past that she she does her wig and her makeup and her dress like the town tramp and she thought that going into music as a dumb blonde persona would get her noticed it would also make things harder for her as a a woman um, uh, trying to make it, but it's a persona that she made that worked and that, and that's the reason why she looks the way she does today is because she created this character and now she, now she uh, lives with that character throughout her career. She was just seems so smart and interesting. And I really love the documentary.
0: William, what a really wonderful connection. That's exactly like her, persona that Dolly Parton has created is exactly like naming the show crazy ex-girlfriend. Oh, I love that. And I love Dolly Parton. I did not know that there was a documentary and I'm so thrilled to watch it. I listened to the uh, Dolly Parton's America podcast, which is super well done and I highly recommend um, and I listened to her music a lot. When nice. I was teaching yoga, I would always try to put a Dolly Parton <laughs> song in my playlist for class. Um, we should like probably do a podcast or something.
2: I like it. Well, my coffee's all gone. Oh no, there's a little bit left. <laughs> we can't Somewhere. see
0: because of your virtual background. It's just a void. <sighs> Let's turn that uh, off. Shall I intro?
1: Yes, please. Bring us in.
0: Welcome to another episode of EdTech Cafe, a podcast series produced by the educational technology team at Stanford Medicine. Our team sits at the intersection of art, science, and education. And in this space, we'll sit down with other media and production savvy professionals to discuss how they use their talents to support science and improve educational outcomes across the globe. I'm Jessica Whittemore, and I'm joined by my super smart co hosts, William Bettini and Andrew Beck. And once again, I panicked to find uh, an adjective.
1: <laughs> well, I'll take super smart. I like that.
0: So now today you have to be uh, super smart, okay? Promise?
2: Oh, well,
0: uh, I... I, uh, uh, Nice. Off to a good start. (laughs) Um, On today's episode, we're joined by George Morrow, who is someone who brings me great joy. I've known him for over a decade now. Um, And he's an AV tech whiz, an actor, and an artist. What are y'all looking forward to in our interview with George?
2: Well, I feel a little bit uh, silly because we failed to bring up the thing that he's most well known for, which is the Night of the Living Dead.
0: Tell Tell me more.
2: I'm confused. Directed by George Morrow. (laughs) <laughs> nice try. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That was George Romero.
3: <laughs>
2: oh. uh, how silly of me. <laughs> he really does look like him. Now, yeah, that he actually about does it.
1: kind of yeah, same like long hair, beard.
0: Does George Romero also like birds?
1: Um, he loves birds.
0: How do you Probably
1: know? likes showing uh, zombies eating
2: birds. More. Oh my zombie birds or zombie birds, yeah. You know bird is the theme of this episode.
0: <laughs> is it?
2: Yeah, more than you know.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! Is our treat of the day bird related?
2: It's absolutely bird related.
0: Is our treat our treat of the day? Treat Does of the treat, day. Our treat. Oh. Our treat of the day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, treat of the day is where we very naively give William permission to tell us about something that caught his attention this week. And it can be any flavor. It can be nutritious, sweet, sour, bitter. What uh, what kind of flavor do you have for us today, William?
2: Today's, uh, today's flavor is cautious. Interesting.
0: That's not a flavor. Tell me more.
2: Um, Well, today I wanted to read a poem that I really like about birds. (laughs) 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 Regale us, please. (laughs) Okay. um, All right. (laughs) Hope I don't laugh through it. Uh, This is uh, a poem by Emily Dickinson, um, which I really love. It's called A Bird Came Down the Walk are you ready
0: yes please read it to us
2: okay a bird came down the walk he did not know i saw he bit an angle worm in halves and ate the fellow raw and then he drank a dew from a convenient grass and then he hopped sidewise to the wall to let a beetle pass. <laughs> he glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all around. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head. Like one in danger, cautious, I offered him a crumb. And he unrolled his feathers and rowed him softer home. Then oars divide the ocean, too silver for a seam. Or butterflies, off banks of noon, leap, splashless as they swim. That's the poem. It's called A Bird Came Down the Walk.
1: It's quite lovely. I don't know why you would, uh, you know, why that would make you laugh.
2: Well, it seems a little bit, uh, you know, Too sincere. Out there. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, you know, uh, well, what do you think of the poem? I can talk about it after.
0: I'm pulling up the, the words because I'm not a good oral learner. So I only took in some of that, but I loved it. Um, my first thought listening to mm-hmm. it was I liked the way that she wrote from a convenient grass, like not a blade of grass or yeah. like, or, oh, 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 and And then he drank a dew, not a drop of dew. I like that she's assigning, like, selfhood to those pieces that we normally would not refer to that. That was really unexpected to me.
2: I think my favorite part, the reason that this poem, like, caught my attention and I wanted to share it was um, these three lines, which... um, Just so you know, there's a line break and a paragraph break after the first line. And then the second two lines are in their own paragraph. But it's these lines I really liked. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger, cautious. I offered him a crumb. And I thought I really the thing that I that caught me about this was that that middle line like, one in danger, cautious, could apply equally to he stirred his velvet head and to I offered him a crumb. And I think that, like, you know, have you ever, have you ever tried to feed a bird out of your palm or um, feed a squirrel? Because, like, in that moment when you're, like, trying to hand the, the bird a crumb, say, you and the bird basically mirror each other intensely. Like like the whole world goes away and then you and bird are basically doing the same thing. Cautious, 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 you know? And I feel like uh, the thing I love about this poem is that it's this, I mean, that's sort of the center of the poem where uh, the speaker is like, having this meeting with something that is um, not them, like complex and like self-motivated and unknowable in the same way that a person is. And uh, I just thought that was really cool. You know, I mean, oftentimes you think about uh, sometimes people talk about like the difference between seeing the world as I it and i thou, where the different the difference is that you you could see something um you could see the outside world that's not you as useful to you or not useful to you or you could see it as um, something other than you that's equal to you and as thou, you know and i really like for me i, I just uh, i thought this poem was really striking and uh I like the way they talk about the bird. (laughs) So that's my treat Uh, of the day. (laughs)
1: Wow. (laughs) Well, I can't help with poetry, just thinking outside the box and extrapolating like allegory or some kind of symbolism or some kind of metaphor out of all this. And um, I just like the transition that it goes from this bird who Emily Dickinson is, is kind of watching and gazing from afar, and it's kind of like doing its own thing, um, just existing and eating a worm, drinking water, letting a beetle pass, um, just kind of going through the motions, if you will, and then as soon as it has this communion with Emily, it suddenly kind of softens up, and it's slow, the, the whole going through the motion slows down a little bit, and the bird unrolls its feathers and flies like very softly home. So on, on a very literal level, like that imagery is, is quite delightful, But I wonder if that, you know, can be extrapolated to mean a whole universe of other things, like, should we all slow down in life? And learn to enjoy the crumbs that we have in communion with each other. Things like that.
0: William, I did try to offer a squirrel a crumb this week. Actually, it was a walnut. I live in a second floor apartment with a balcony. And after years, for the first time, saw a squirrel on the balcony. So it had to like leap from the redwood tree. (laughs) That's quite a distance away onto the balcony, and I very cautiously tried to hand it a walnut. It wasn't into it; it ran away. I, I mean, mean, he has unrolled anybody- his his feathers <laughs> and. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, has anyone ever successfully like had this communion with with animals in that way? I've tried many times as a kid and very quickly realized life is not like a Disney movie. <laughs>
0: Perhaps if you're gentle enough, but not every time. There is no guarantee. That's kind of nice.
2: Um, at Berkeley, uh, the squirrels are famously human friendly. And I have fed, I have handed a squirrel um, peanuts out of my hand. And um, my both my grandma and my dad feed birds. They've like done it so long like years that they are able to occasionally feed a bird out of their hand wow um but it take it it takes that um like one in danger cautious it takes that patience in that in that intense uh almost like a mind melding with the bird of of like this mutual understanding of where you are in relationship to each other and i i do feel like what you were saying andrew like the once once this event happens once you offer the bird the crumb <laughs> like once that all happens there's like this in there's there is a sort of serenity um yeah i don't know it's it's sort of like uh it's special yeah, and even even though you know birds are just birds and we're just people, there's something really special about that meeting.
0: We don't know if he, too bad. if he took the crumb, though.
2: We don't. That's true. Perhaps perhaps it's the
1: very gesture of offering itself that provides serenity.
0: Ooh la la! <laughs> I like. It's too that. bad.
1: I. It's too bad. I I never became gentler or more patient. Growing
2: up than Andrew, I was when I was a child
0: It is never too late
2: <laughs> The reason I I, um, I thought about this poem um, Was I, I'm reading another book Which Jess recommended to me a while ago um, The So I'm reading the second book of the Three-Body Problem mm. By um, I don't know how to pronounce the name G- chi Yun Lin, something like that.
0: I am of no assistance.
2: Well, I'm reading
0: L I. It's spelled L I U C I X I N in English letters.
2: Well, I'm reading the second book, which is called The Dark Forest, and I'm really loving it. And um, this is all this this uh, story is also about sort of. Uh, the bird and the human in a way, because um, it's about humans attempting to understand another um, intelligent civilization in the galaxy who is so completely different and um, like in many ways, impossible to understand as a person. So that like theme of, uh, of not, not, not being a, the, that theme of like not being able to understand but being able to simply perceive, is uh, is part of that story, and it made me think about this poem. And I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting thing to think about over the week of, um, you know, do you, of your mindset in living in the world. Do you try to understand and interpret everything? Or do you simply perceive it and kind of see the world as having its own mysteries?
0: Just let it wash over you.
2: Yeah. Like a bird shower. I
0: try to find a mix of bird (laughs) (laughs) showers. William, I don't know if you are feeling self-conscious about this, but you keep giggling and he just full-on walked away from (laughs) His computer yeah. <laughs> in a like giggle twirl, but I think this is delightful, and it's okay to just feel serious and uh, introspective about it. Um, well, yeah. does does it <laughs> indeed in the last line of this poem say "plashless"? Yes, mm-hmm. or am I looking at a typo? Okay, what are your thoughts on?
1: Plashless.
0: plashless, as they swim.
2: Um, so, splashless just means smoothly, fluidly, uh, without splashing.
0: It's just a word I didn't know.
2: Yeah, when I read it, I made the decision to say splashless because I feel like nobody <laughs> in nobody in the last one hundred years. Says
0: plashless or you read it aloud, splashless? I did, yeah, William.
2: I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna
1: have to audio modify (laughs) the podcast a little bit later.
0: What an interesting thing that just happened! So, William read splashless, but I pulled up the poem and see that it says plashless. Interesting. He
1: was given the okay by Emily's ghost.
2: Yeah, so a plash is um, the sound produced by liquid striking something or being struck. How interesting.
0: Huh. Huh. So what? it's the sound as opposed to a splash, which is perhaps the volume of water expelled into the air.
2: Cool. Yes. Yes, that's the, that's it. <laughs> And it is interesting, are there- butterflies are plashless.
0: Yes. And I'm noticing now, looking through this poem, that it is all visual and movement and mood, and there's no sound whatsoever. Mm. The entire poem is plashless. right? There are no I adjectives just, for... I- for sound.
1: Oh, Jessica,
2: I like that. I mean, I feel like it captures like what bird watching is, is like, it is so quiet. Birds are very quiet, unless they're making a lot of sound. (laughs) 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 Certain birds are louder than other birds. For instance, cockatoos and parrots.
0: Yeah, we will uh, learn soon, that. George has to put his birds out in the backyard for a podcast recording.
2: <laughs> I wonder how I, uh, I wonder what the feedback on this podcast is. When I have one of these um, uh, treat of the days, I feel like the most insane person, like bringing up the most random shit. I mean, random stuff. Like I was actually, I kind of love looking and thinking about something to present because I go on these crazy journeys, um, searching for anything to say.
1: Jessica, Jessica was right in that it's you know not aptly named uh, because it's more like a treat of the week. And you're quite the sage when you you know oh. bring up these random ass topics, <laughs> random ass poems.
0: I hope that we are not making you feel silly with our reception of your treats because they're always a delight.
2: No, you know what? I have so like I'm so interested in a lot of things i I, that I don't get to talk about with anybody uh, ever. Um, So this is really fun, and you know what? Like I I, this last week I've been um, I've been. uh, reading a lot of uh, Emily Dickinson's poems which I haven't read in a while I highly recommend it her poems are so incredibly good um, wow. uh, uh, they're the kind of thing that you can read your entire life because you you can you can grow into you can grow to meet them and the thoughts that they have and they can also teach you how to do that
0: And much like the light changes throughout each season, as you change through your life, it may just hit you in a different way.
1: Yeah. Holy crap.
0: Our are turning into poets. (sighs) Our uh, previous podcast guest, Maria Marquis, is actually working on a two-person play about Emily Dickinson, featuring her... And her female neighbor that she was had mm. an unrequited love affair with.
1: Mm.
0: I love Emily Dickinson. She, I want to not, yeah, I was
1: I was gonna say not just her poems, but her biography is incredibly fascinating. Um, entering almost entering a life of like uh, <laughs> um, a life in the convent, um, getting out and remain remaining. Uh, steadfastly a a bachelorette and um how these various affairs that she's she's had or um, certain passions she's had um really inform a lot about her work and i only bring all this up i only bring all this up as if i know it because i watched a a movie about emily dickinson's life directed by the director of my favorite movie distant voices still alive another plug to go watch it um, but the movie itself is called a quiet passion and it's it's quite it's it's great it's cynthia nixon as emily dickinson and Ooh. yeah it it kind of goes from oh, yeah. the convent to her death um the whole movie wow
0: thanks i'm gonna watch that movie
1: drink some coffee beforehand though
0: who is it nice and slow or a pick
1: me up of some kind yeah i don't know if a glass of wine will do you any good in this case
0: slow and quiet films are my favorite the slower and the quieter the better so
1: oh maybe i could
0: even enjoy some wine
1: It's also very funny. She has, I guess, she's had... I don't know if this is the same character, the neighbor character who she's had an affair with, but um, she had a very, very close friend. Um, I I, I forget if she was a socialite or something like that, but just incredibly funny. The banter that they have together is so witty and so fast. And um, I would say those are... Those go against the overall somber, um, slow pace. So you know there are moments where a glass of wine would be quite
2: appropriate.
0: <laughs> it's shelter in place. You can't tell me when or when not to bring <laughs> <That's>
2: wine. <true. laughs> there should be like menus that go in sync with a movie. Ooh, yeah.
0: There, there's a whole troop of people that do that with. The Ring series, the Wagner operas.
2: Oh, seriously?
0: Yeah. Uh, People have developed these like – insane. People follow the opera wherever it goes, um, and they've developed these like super elaborate multi-course meals that go with each of them. That's totally a thing. Wow. William, how does this poem – how does thinking about this poem uh, relate to how you think about our work?
2: Oh, about edtech?
0: tech? Yeah.
2: Um, well, you know, um, I mean, at like a fundamental level, like creating work for other people, which is what we do. Um, you have to. Well. Here's the interesting thing. Is that Are you about
0: to call our faculty members birds? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but that's it. But I'm serious, they're birds,
1: <laughs> they glance I, with rapid eyes, <laughs> they hur- hurry all around, they got well,
0: velvet heads, <laughs>
2: <laughs> some of them. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, like I, br- like what I brought up earlier it is the idea of, of how you relate to the, to the world around you is I, it versus I, thou. A lot of people talk about, and especially in like, in just like the way people talk about design, you talk about, um, understanding people trying to understand why people do things. And there are, you know, there are education Models that are built on this idea of understanding people such as like You know, oh people like people learn better through experience, etc. But um, I mean the reality is that like you can't understand another person
0: let alone all people
2: let alone all people And and that applies to the people that you're making something for and the people you're making something with, um, including the, our faculty that we, we talk with. And sometimes it's very hard to get on the same page as, as our faculty when we're designing things. Sometimes the things that we do don't make sense to learners. I think that the perspective of trying to understand people and doing things according to rules, uh, around that understanding is it's useful but it's not the truth because the truth is that what what you can really do is perceive people and what you can really do is perceive the way that that people behave but you can't understand them not in a real way and i think that um i i feel like this uh um poem talks about it talks about perception in that the whole poem is perception it's this intensity of perception about of of the bird but it's none of the understanding and then you have this moment that that those three lines that i mentioned the that's like this like linchpin uh of connection between the observer and the bird and then the moment fades away in this kind of bliss when the bird f- goes when the bird flies away and you're left with the like the resounding sound of silence and smoothness and then it goes away and and i think that that i think that the way that um we meet our our learners is maybe not so dramatically this way but we have this like touch with the with our learners and then it's gone um, and I think the question about how do you, how do you approach that moment is a really important one. Do you try to understand or you, do you try to perceive? And, um, I think that determines what you take away from it.
1: And you can think of like the work we do, um, definitely, or uh, definitely in the education space, um, as kind of bridging the gap between, instructor and learner so we are like quite literally the crumb
2: (laughs) yeah we're the crumb we are
1: we are the the morsel that provides this serenity this communion of serenity and maybe not understanding as williams suggesting but um or Mm. as williams suggested that it wasn't but uh yeah some kind of greater appreciation you did it. i like that
0: except I don't know how well a crumb perceives
1: <laughs> <laughs> itself, or or the world or, around it. World around it yeah. yeah, crumb is crumb
0: is crumb. And it's, looking at this, looking at this poem, I am delighted at Miss um, Dickinson's very intentional capitalization of certain words, uh, which makes me think of copy editing our courses and that you can make choices that add meaning even through something as simple as capitalization or grammar or punctuation. This woman has M dashes all over this poem, which (laughs) I love. (laughs) I can always tell if I've read or edited uh, some of our work already, if it has any M dashes in it. If it has none, then I haven't touched it. And I just recently added a hotkey to my computer, I think using auto hotkeys, um, so that I have M-dash at my very fingertip.
2: Wow. Nice. I've all, You know, I've personally, I've always thought about the M-dash being, as being named after Emily Dickinson because she uses them so much. <laughs>
0: what if it is?
2: <laughs> well, the you know what? I'm not going to tell you the real reason. It is because it's named after her.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, if we just tell people that, then yeah, this could work.
2: Nobody needs to know the real reason, because the true reason is that Emily Dickinson used them all the time, so they're named after her.
0: I love it. I feel like then the E would be always capitalized, though.
2: <laughs> it should be. Uh, That was something that's been lost to time, but we could bring it back.
0: (laughs) William, do you have any more thoughts on this poem that you would like to share with us?
2: All I would say is just go read a poem (laughs) by Emily Dickinson because she's so good.
0: Yeah. She's the best. Simply the best.
2: Honestly, it will also calm you, too. It'll calm your nerves in this time of... uh, insanity the best poems do of
0: turmoil yeah i want to like get a hammock and lay in a backyard or a park and read some emily dickinson
1: and and speaking of turmoil uh before we invite george over to our table um this is i think the last podcast we'll do before the election hits next week so to our listeners, go vote, vote, vote.
0: And if you're listening to this after, oh, we don't know what happens yet. Yeah. I'm sure i sure we'll
1: already have lots voted. to talk about next episode. Did y'all vote already? Just got to turn in my mail-in ballot. But I, had, I have all my choices
0: selected. And I nice. had to retrieve my mail-in ballot from my parents' home. I now safely have it in my possession, but have yet to fill it out. Um, but looking forward to, Oh, putting that ink on paper, (laughs) (laughs) y'all.
2: Yeah. I voted this, uh, last weekend and, um, it was actually the first time I voted in person, which I did by choice because I wanted, I wanted to feel the moment. And, uh, I really had a great time standing in line with my 80-year-old neighbor, uh, yes. storytelling for like nine, we stood in line for 90 minutes, and we voted. Uh, it was chaotic, but joyful. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Sounds like New York to a T. Yeah, <laughs> definitely.
1: And
0: no, no problems. It was a seamless voting experience other than the wait.
2: Uh, well, like Mr. Bean, as soon as I walked into the building, <laughs> all of the printers broke. <laughs> but they figured it out. Mr. Bean will be another treat of the, of the day. He's also uh, <laughs> incredible.
1: Quite an inspiration. He's the Emily I've Dickinson watched- of clowning. <laughs>
0: I'm more familiar with Rowan Atkinson from his work on Blackadder, which is Oh yeah. so different from Mr. Bean cuz on Blackadder he is like the most cutting, rude, crude uh man in ancient England.
1: And you can't no fi- you can't Bean. find you can't find a more hapless bumbling person than Mr. Bean.
0: <laughs> All the printers broke. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's I feel like it's time for our is that George?
1: Our main course? George Morrill. It's George. Uh, I
0: see a I see a bird shirt. George.
2: Let me get the salt and pepper out. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna eat George.
4: Outside of New York City, and we had one when I was a kid. Uh, they kind of vanished, uh, like in the late '60s, just about the same time the uh, the Catholic Church changed everything from Latin to English. I wonder if there's a correlation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Could it be? <laughs> it it be... reminds me of uh, Saint Patrick uh, driving all the snakes out of Ireland. <laughs> well, you can't it milk. milk it. You can't milk a snake.
4: Well, actually, you can.
2: <laughs> okay, okay. I'm gonna make my Google history weird. Can I make a? Can I milk a snake?
0: You can milk it for venom.
4: Yes. Oh. Or get a or get a really tiny stool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Either way, you're gonna need the tiny stool. Maybe milkmen have just evolved into grocery deliveries. You can get milk delivered.
4: Sure,
2: could be. I w- I was uh, learning about the history of um, the supermarket, and um, the kind of uh, consolidation of all shopping into one building is it's pretty new. You know, uh, with uh, Piggly Wiggly's was the first supermarket.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I've and been think- to the I've been to the Piggly Wiggly museum in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> yeah
2: good times <laughs> We should that, talk about that for an hour
0: yeah <laughs> is, is that a museum of groceries or is it something else?
4: Well, it's kind of a museum of the um the family that started it and it's a very large mansion just outside of Memphis um and it's it's what's interesting they they're using uh, like local quarried um, stones that are kind of pink in color, kind of a pink um, granite—not uh, really granite, but a sort of shale—that uh, they lined the outside of the building with. It's very interesting. I wonder if they so modeled the color of the pig after the color of the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so weird. But they How do really? have—they do have a simulated um, grocery store, like their first grocery store, where you walk in and and get all your. Um, Items that you needed to get, so they you walk through the aisles. <laughs> it's very strange. Oh, how recent are we talking here? Uh, this was
1: in terms just a like, concept. Uh, just oh oh uh, of of uh, supermarkets. Yeah, when
2: the first Piggly Wiggly. Oh, uh, I think like turn of the twentieth
4: century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. something like that. But
2: you went last. Last year, George?
4: Yeah, it was uh, like last, I think last May. So it's been about a year, uh, yeah, over a year and a half now.
0: <laughs> what, if, wow. what if your last pre-COVID vacation was to the Pig- Piggly <laughs> Wiggly Museum?
4: <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I went to the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Much like working with George, trying to... uh record him as an actor on film, he's very distracting, <laughs> whether it be <laughs> filming, podcasting, rehearsing. Hey.
4: Hey. We always a, got it
0: in a best in the best way.
4: Of course, but we always got it done.
0: It's true. If you ever need someone to brainstorm jokes with you, George Morrow, <laughs> that's the way to go. <laughs>
4: uh
0: well should we start?
1: I'm ready. Let's do it.
0: I finally heard Andrew's voice, so I know he's here, too. Oh, yeah. Our guest today is George Morrow, formerly of the AV Tech team at Stanford Medicine. George comes to us with decades of video production experience, which he studied in both undergraduate (laughs) – why was that word hard? – in both undergraduate and graduate programs before heading out into the professional world. He's also taught video production for a wide variety of clients, including Apple, Digital, Medi- Digital Media Academy, and Bay Area Video Coalition, before arriving at Stanford to support audiovisual technology. Welcome, George.
4: Thank you, Jessica.
0: And your bio does not mention that you're also an avid theater participant. Um, we've been... In how many shows together now? Oh,
4: mm-hmm. um, yeah, at least three.
0: I like that. At least three, also, including <laughs> my first show as an adult 10 years ago.
4: No way. Where, are, are, yeah. You're only 12 years old now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, as an adult, George.
4: All right. So you're only 20 years old now?
0: Okay. <laughs> okay, George.
4: <laughs> um, What'd you play, George? Gandalf? <laughs> Um, in theater? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I've been in two uh, over about 200 shows, so it'd be kind of hard to narrow that down, but... Oh, in, sh- uh how about in Jess, the ones you did with Jess? Well, in Jess, the first show I remember meeting her in when we did um, the musical version of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, oh, if you ever oh. get a chance to see that show, don't. <laughs> 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 it's just like the movie, only worse. It has <laughs> it has song and dance in it, although although Jessica was wonderful in it. She played was it Veronica or Victoria? Violet. Violet. I knew it was a V of some sort. Yeah. And I played Uncle Bill, the uh, the drunkard who loses all the money. <laughs> yeah. So that not, was not oh, great.
0: so much a drunkard until the alternate reality. It,
4: true, true that, true that. Yeah. And okay. then uh, then we did um, we were in Young Frankenstein together. You can oh just my. you can just guess what part Jessica played <laughs> roll in the hay, roll. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and George was our delightful let's see the police inspector, the blind hermit, and was there another one in there?
4: No, there was not okay was this well, this all for, was
1: this all for one company
4: no, for it's all fun and games um until somebody loses an eye <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> one of them was for um. That was at Hill Barn uh, mm-hmm. in Foster Barn City, Theater, right?
0: And we've mm-hmm. been at another one Palo at Alta. Foothill. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We get all over the place.
4: And Palo Alto players, yeah. Oh, wow.
2: Well, Young Frankenstein is one of the best movies ever. <laughs> I've never seen it live, though. Um,
4: it's pretty close oh. to the movie. They try to do you know as yeah. much silliness as they can in the movie. <sighs>
0: Good. They kind cool. of they like take all the favorite moments of song and music out of the movie and turn them into songs or have the song. So like they have putting on the Ritz, which is just a giant tap number, mm-hmm. um, and then they turn Roll in the Hay into a full song. Mm-hmm.
2: Is it black yeah. and white as well? <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
0: you men- know yes. some shows do do clever things like that. Mm-hmm. This one did not
1: so George, it seemed like uh you know your professional career is uh pretty specific to video and a v tech how did you is is theater just like a passion of yours that you kind of do for fun? Like
4: yeah actually fun and games yeah theater is 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 just for fun and games. um I used to be a professional musician, and uh, when I was in oh, college no way. i oh wait. Um, hey, I'm not just another pretty face. <laughs> um, yeah, but theater theater was kind of fun. It actually stemmed from uh, from being a musician. I used to play uh, in the pit orchestra and in college, and I would look up on stage and see these people having a blast, and I'm down in the dark, thinking, "Why am I down yeah. here?" <laughs> I mean, the only the only good part about it Is that I got I got to read the music. I never had to memorize it. And it was like getting off stage now, and it's like, "Oh no, now I have to memorize lines, oh man, <laughs> it's pretty infectious yeah. watching actors, oh yeah, yeah it was it was kind of interesting, yeah.
0: so you're not a trained actor?
4: No, I just did it just just for giggles uh, somebody uh, I was actually dating uh the girl who was in the show that I was playing for. And she said, you know, you're kind of an outgoing guy. Why don't you get up there and, you know, act? And I said, I don't know how to act. And I, and she kind of said, well, you're doing it
0: now. And I said, okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you act like a human. You may as well go and, you know, do it on stage. Why not?
0: So, oh, George, you're such a natural.
4: Da-da-da. <laughs> it,
0: was, it was really nice. Uh, George played one of the actors... Uh, When we did a shoot for faculty mentoring videos and he played one of our faculty and he (laughs) was probably the only person we had in that entire uh, shoot who really figured out his (laughs) lines, even though he was he he concocted this huge board um, as a cue sheet (laughs) with cue words. So not the whole line, but like something to help him remember the gist. And he's just so good at improvising um, that he was so in character and like so into it. And his shoots went so easy, except that we kept laughing.
4: Yes. <laughs> I, I try not to be funny sometimes. It just doesn't work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, George, you have a bird.
4: Yeah, actually, um, I spent most of the morning trying to keep them quiet. And uh, I, I put them out into the living room on their little playpen. Uh, my wife promised that she will try to keep them quiet, but she's on her way to Pilates now. And they started, you know, making noises. And so finally, I just put them outside. I have a cage out in the back. And, uh, and so they're out now. Luckily, it's not too cold. Um, so they're out in the back now wondering, what did they do wrong? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah.
0: Our podcast has relegated the birds to the backyard.
4: That's right. Yeah. Put them in the backyard. Um, But I gave them some food and water, so they should be fine. But I'm I'm sure they'll, you know, they'll talk to the deer or the fox. Hopefully, the coyote won't be out there. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of birds are they? Uh, Parrots. Um, One is a yellow naped Amazon. One is an African gray. The yellow-nape is uh, 34 years old. And I've had her wow. since she was a yeah since she was a chick, and um and I had uh, the African Grey who's thirty one, uh, had him uh, as an egg actually. Um wow. I didn't have I didn't have to sit on it until it hatched. I waited for the breeders to say he's he's done. He's come come get him. So yeah, I've had him for a long time. At one point, I had uh, nine parrots. Oh my goodness! I mean, yeah, it was quite exciting. That's incredible, George.
0: I'm a, I'm astounded.
2: Don't be. Are they uh, are they talkative? I'd imagine that they are.
4: Yeah, sometimes too much. Um, That's why they're out in the back right now. (laughs) Uh, One does uh, the African gray does more sound effects than um, than actual talking. The other one, um, the yellow nape, um, she uh, she has a handful of phrases that she says, but um, a lot of the stuff she says sounds like speaking, but it's just mostly just noises, garbling. it's almost like listening to a conversation through a wall. Oh. And uh and she repeats it, but I mean her cadences are exactly the same, her wow. her inflections are exactly the same and we can predict, you know, when she's going to pause and when she's going to say the word oh as as, as like she's listening to a conversation and then you just hear somebody going blah 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 blah. Oh, <laughs> blah 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 blah. Oh. It's it's just hysterical. I mean, it's hysterical for people who've never seen it before. But after thirty years, it's it's getting old.
2: Sounds like you could make a movie.
4: Do they get pretty? Do they <laughs> get pretty affectionate? Um, to usually, especially one, especially they, since you've raised them for so long. Sure, sure. I mean, they they both are very affectionate to me. The yellow nape, um, she can be uh, affectionate to other people if you approach her, you know, quietly and and safely. Uh, the the African gray doesn't like anybody but me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so they, they have a personality, and they have a person that they like, and they bond with uh, other people. Eh. Whoever oh, feeds them the most. I was just going to say, yeah, the yellow nape, if you, if you have a treat for her, oh, she'll love you. Um, <laughs> but then she'll try to climb down from your shoulder and walk on the floor and, and just create havoc. <laughs> my,
2: my, uh, my family had a cockatoo my entire life. Oh, my. And um, very talkative, very loud, and I was his favorite. Oh, good. Uh, his name was Cricket, and mm-hmm. we did aerobics together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was his primary companion, so oh, cool. that's why I
4: got all the love.
2: Right. But they're well, really sweet to the they one are. person well, that they like.
4: The, the cockatoos are, are usually very sweet. The Moluccas are the largest ones. Um, well, relatively large ones. Uh, do you remember what kind of cockatoo it was?
2: Um, let's see. It was... One of the, uh, well, it was white. Cricket was white and had uh, kind of like
4: pale blue eyeballs, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, Did it have a yellow crest? Its crest was not yellow. Oh, okay. All right. So it was probably an umbrella uh, cockatoo.
2: Let's
4: see. Yeah. Yeah. Very sweet. You're looking it up? (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking it up. (laughs) Ah, the interweb. (laughs) Um, what's interesting is that I had a a friend of mine, um, who had a cockatoo as a pet. Um, he had to give it away because he was a priest and cockatoos have a, a powder based feather. And so he would constantly have to be like, you know, cleaning his, his suit off, uh, because his suit was black, of course, and cockatoos have a white powder and he was just continually, you know, brushing himself Mm. off. So he finally had to give it away. And I think my sister took it, Mm. um, so well, I know just, all like a,
0: just like a cat lady, just like a cat lady.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and all of these birds as pets are, do they, do you clip their wings or is that a practice frowned upon?
4: No, no, no. It's not frowned upon. Um, the, uh, the yellow nape, um, I've, I trimmed her wings for a number of years and then she just decided, well, I'm just not going to uh, you know, fly around. And she, she pretty much just waits for people to carry her around on her silver pillow.
3: Um,
4: and she forget, and she's forgotten that she can fly. Cause she'll, she'll stand, you know, on top of her perch and she'll like, you know, make motions and flap her wings. Like I want to come down. I want to come down, especially if I'm drinking coffee, cause she loves coffee, which is so bad for her. Um, <laughs> no and I'll look at her and I'll say, you know, you can fly. And she just looks at me like, what? Come and get me. Um, but the African gray has gotten out of the house a couple of times, um, cause he's very skittish and he is, uh, like I've had to go find him in the neighborhood and I had to trim oh, his geez. wings. So his, yeah. So his, his wings are trimmed and I do it like, uh, once a year I'll trim them back. But, uh, he, uh, he's not flying anymore.
0: <laughs> well, I hope we haven't put you in the doghouse with the birds outside <laughs> <laughs> for the podcast. Yes. Um, I'm looking at a yawning list of questions here. So we have so, to stop talking about birds, even though right. you're the expert. Yeah. And Chickens, I want
4: to. <laughs> right. Chickens are fun, but, you know, we have work to do. <laughs> um,
0: so it sounds like from your schooling that you knew that you wanted to get into um, film or AV tech mm-hmm. production sort of stuff early yeah. on. Right.
4: Well, yeah, in, um, in grade school, I mean, I started playing musical instruments when I was in like fourth grade. I took up the, the flute, was the first instrument. And, you know, the boys used to make fun of me. So I said, okay, fine. So I took up violin. I guess I'd show them. burn. Yeah, sick burn. <laughs> uh, and then uh, from violin, I went to trumpet and then cello and so on and so on. So music was a pretty big part of my life, um, you know, starting from grade school and that kind of like got me interested in photography for some reason because, you know, we, you know we'd be playing in bands and I picked up uh, cello and then guitar and then bass. And um, so I started forming bands. And of course, they said, well, let's do photography. I had an uncle who was a professional photographer and he gave me a beautiful um, a reflex camera. And I just loved it. And I started, you know, doing photography. So I thought, hey, this is kind of be fun. So in high school, I actually became one of those AV geeks. <laughs> Tinkering with wires, things oh like that. yeah, playing with wires, going into you know the the uh, classrooms of the science teacher and you know hooking up their sixteen millimeter uh, projector and uh, <laughs> starting it up and then walking out and then going to whatever next assignment I had. Uh, so I became one of those AV nerds, and then decided um, going to go into college. I figured, hey, this will be kind of fun. So my first, uh, my two year college, uh, I went to Alfred State college in upstate New York, and uh, and took AV technology, because I had a friend of mine who took it and said, it's the greatest thing in the world, do it. And so I did.
1: Wow. And, and what are these programs like? Are you just learning about different hardware, different pieces of equipment? Okay, you know, so we're talking
4: about, we're talking the stone age here. Uh, So my my first year in college was before any of you were born. Are you ready? It was 1970. (laughs) It was 1975 was my first year in college. And um, AV technology consisted of photography, um, reprographics, which was offset press um, operation and design, um, graphic design. And this, this is all, you know, way before... Um, laptops uh, and personal computers were out. So seventy-five was, you know, we're talking stone and chisel, and uh, <laughs> and you know, and 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 uh, something called a Kodak Carousel um, slide projector, along with you know some uh, hardware that would allow you to do dissolves between one projector and the next, and that was black magic to oh, us. wow! That was, that was ooh, that was something. Um, anyway, so that. That was the uh, the first couple of years uh, of college was studying how to take a script, make a storyboard, go out and shoot, bring the film back, and literally process the film, either color or black and white. And to me, that was you know playing with chemicals in a dark room was just a, a blast <laughs> and uh, and then doing reshoots, doing audio stuff, and Um, It turned out that me being slightly colorblind was not good for photography. Oh, no. So what I did is I turned left and I went into television instead, because even though um, I still had the same eyes, (laughs) which were slightly colorblind... Uh, I had scopes that allowed me to, you know, figure out where skin tone was and what is too green, what's too red. So I had vector scopes and waveform monitors and all kinds of, you know, magical tools to help me, you know, bring a a picture uh, into reality. Oh wow! So, but it's it's interesting that um,
1: I mean you keep referring to it as a Stone Age, but a lot of the concepts. <laughs> Um, oh yeah. you brought Concepts. up they're, they're all pretty fundamental still
4: you, today I mean uh, I mean I, you use the same fundamentals right you, you yeah. use the same techniques you take you still take a script you still take um, a concept and you work it out on paper and ink um, and you just you know you hammer it out before you actually start filming now, the, the only thing that's different is that things are easier uh, because you can you can pour things into your computer instead of you know writing it on paper and then losing it or sneezing on it and you know smearing all the stuff, <laughs> uh, and um, that which is a good thing and a bad thing. And the good thing is, you have things written down. You have an idea. You have a concept. Uh, And then you, you know, send people out to do these. You have one person who's in charge of, you know, going out and shooting backgrounds. You have one person who's in charge of, you know, writing the script and finalizing a script. You have another person who goes out and records your voiceover talent. You have another person that goes out and photographs the main um, part of the, uh, of the, uh, of the project. Uh, Today, and that's the good thing I mean you have another you know, have a whole bunch of people who can help you do a project but today because of the, you know, the whole revelation of um you know everything shrunk down to a laptop, only one person is really needed to do this and so it puts all the onus on that one person so that's the bad thing <laughs> you mm-hmm. you know exactly who to blame it's only one person
1: <laughs> and by this point and by this point in college that you um
4: have any aspirations for Hollywood or anything like that oh heavens no um, not Hollywood so much uh, when I was uh, when I got involved in uh, in television and radio um, I saw that as my my uh, my goal in life was to work uh, in television and specifically uh, editing I found mm-hmm. that editing was, um, was really satisfying because you can just take all of the little tiny pieces that somebody gives you sure, and cobble it together to make a final product. You know, it's the quintessential, you know, making the final piece greater than the sum of its parts, uh, just through editing. And when I was a kid, we took a, uh, we took a class trip down to, uh, uh, to 30 Rock, uh, NBC studios in Manhattan and we took this tour and they showed us you know how the you know the the sausages made which is kind of scary and <laughs> we walked past this one uh plate glass window that had and I, I think of it as sort of a zoo because you know you have these guys who are actually working uh, working and these and this one character was you know he had his back to us and he was staring at a wall full of monitors and all of these scopes and all these other weird things. This is in high school, I'm talking now. And uh, he was an online editor. He was, you know, looking at time code. He was, you know, looking at a script. He had a art director sitting behind him saying, you know, do this, do that, do this. And he would be, you know, all these machines would be moving at his command. And uh, and he would be doing um, editing and we were watching him and and we watched literally we watched him do one edit it took about five minutes because you know we had to make decisions they had to make you know color corrections they had to do all this stuff that he was taking care of and and I was just fascinated in watching this guy do that. And, and, you know, the, the rest of the class moved on to the sound effects room, but I just stayed plastered watching this guy doing this work. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God, he's in control. He's like a God, you know, he just, he has, yeah. uh, the world at his fingertips, literally, you know, he just had, uh, everything. it was fascinating because back then, um, we're talking, uh, mid seventies and, uh, the, the videotape technology then was, um, you know, two-inch quadruplex uh, videotape, which just doesn't right, exist anymore. Right, right. Um, One-inch tape was just starting to, uh, to come out, and NBC had a couple of those one-inch machines, and they were mammoth machines. And I was just fascinated with that. And that, and, I, and that stuck in my head, and when I finally got to college and I got to see those, you know, up close and personal, I thought, ah, this is where I want to go. So I kind of like, you know, went into the television stuff. So I never thought about going to Hollywood in New York because I lived in New York and I just didn't want to work down there at that point because it was impossible. Because, you know, coming out of college, I'd be lucky to, you know, uh, get a job, uh, you know, at a radio station as a, you know, junior salesperson (laughs) at a beautiful music station uh, when I first got out. Uh, Going to New York would have been, you know, something down the line. But I did start working in television and then worked up from market to market to market and so on. And um, here I am. But I never wanted to go to New York or Chicago or L.A. because that was too scary to me at the time. Now I just don't care.
0: (laughs) 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 Wow, that was such a transformative field trip (sighs) for you.
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: So tell us about... Um, experience working with video outside of educational setting? Because that's what we do for the most part at EdTech.
4: Right. Uh, Most of my career in television has been working for either a uh, production house, uh, which is also a post-production house. And we would do uh, TV commercials, local commercials mostly. And we would do training tapes. We do corporate videos And every day, it was a different project. Uh, Sometimes a project might last two or three days, maybe a week. Um, But it was always a different project. I'd be working, uh, there was a a department store called Jordan Marsh in uh, New York and Boston. And they would have like a new line of copper pot, uh, uh, copper cooking pots that they would come out with and they wanted to advertise it at the next, you know, trade show. And we'd spend a couple of days, you know, putting together this beautiful montage of uh, new cookware, the next day I'd be doing uh, commercials for for a furniture company or something. So it was always different. I mean, every day we had a, a different project, so... It just like went all over the place. What, was that
1: working for like a, a specific agency or was this all part of the freelance experience? No, this,
4: this, this was actually working for a company. Um, it was a, uh, a company called Videocraft Craft in uh, mm-hmm. Boston at the time. And it was a uh, post-production house that also did uh, film and uh, video taping. It had a, a small studio where we'd have people come in Um. And uh, this, was, this was a full-time job. I worked there for about uh, almost nine years. And uh, I became you know, quite... Uh, I started out as a junior editor, and within two years I was a senior editor because we had so many people moving up and out and going to you know, different markets and such, that within two years um, I was their senior editor, and I stayed there for another five or six years.
0: George, wow, and yeah. because you were doing a great job
4: and i was also doing a great job. Thank you Jessica. <laughs> that
2: sounds like so much fun meeting uh, i mean did you have like regular clients or would you be meeting new people you oh, know, no, every no. week uh, every day?
4: Uh, art directors and producers when they uh, start working with an editor to uh, uh, when they start working with an editor that I, that they like they'll always come back and they'll request me. Um, I did a lot of, yeah, I did a lot of work for WGBH. They would come in to do uh, the Nova uh, series. Um, Oh, I love Nova. Oh, Nova is wonderful. We had, um, we did a lot of uh, audio recording with a guy named Don Westcott. Don Westcott was the voice of GBH. And if you watch Nova, you know his voice. Uh, He's retired Mm now. um, And, but he would come in at least once a month, uh, to record, um, a project. And he was a blast. I mean, he would, uh, he would cut jokes and he would just be a, a, a really, really silly. And then I would take his audio in, into the edit suite, cut it up into, you know, the pieces that we needed. Then we would just paint by numbers. We would just add the pictures to his voiceover. So Don Westcott and his group would come in, uh, regularly. Um, like I mentioned, Jordan Marsh would come in. It was a, uh, Uh, who, uh, Eddie Bauer was, uh, one of my clients. Um, they were like a higher scale Macy's kind of a department store. Um, yeah. So I would have, uh, people that would come back to the same production house because they liked me, which was good.
0: (laughs) That always makes you feel nice. Yeah, it does. Um, so that agency was before you worked freelance?
4: Yes, that was, uh, that was in the, um, let's see, that was in the late 80s, early 90s, as before I did freelance. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had kind of an interesting career when I finally got out of college and I had my second degree, my, um, my bachelor's degree in television and radio. I really never did very much in radio. Um, uh, most of it was just, uh, you know, just audio recording and such. But uh, television was where I was headed. Beep, 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 beep. Is the milkman done? Pardon me. Is <laughs> that the milkman yeah. says, come out get your cottage cheese, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, where was I? Oh, so uh, yeah, after college, um, after I got my second degree and I figured, okay, well, I got all the college learning I need. So I decided to do the smart thing and, uh, and got my agent. I still had an agent uh, for music, uh, got him to uh to find me a gig, and uh, I went on the road for two years uh playing with a professional band oh, and wow. um and then I realized hmm, I probably should work like a grown up now and then decided to uh to go ahead and you know get a real job and that's when I started you know seriously getting into the field that I was in and then bounced around i didn't do the freelance thing till after I moved from Boston to California when I got to California. Um, my ex worked for Apple, so we had to move out here. Um, Uh so, uh, so, so here we came and then I had, you know, I didn't have any real ins at the time. I worked for Avid Technology when I was in Boston, when I, before, before I moved to California and Avid Technology was, you know, pretty big in the nonlinear editing system and still are. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just, came out here, you know having linear editing and nonlinear editing in my background and started you know doing freelance stuff. Uh, and at the same time, this is in the early 90s now, that's when laptops and you know the Macintosh started getting uh, really large in the industry with with being able to do all this magical stuff on a laptop. You know Photoshop was coming out and uh, After Effects was pretty new um, and you know and and affordable. You know, luckily, I had a person that worked for Apple, so I got some of the software uh, for a low cost. And when they got um, hold of um, a piece of software called Final Cut Pro, um, that, became, <laughs> that became my newest toy. Uh, and since I learned that, actually I actually was self-taught on Final Cut uh, version 1. Uh, it was still kind of, you know, chunky, but uh, it, it it worked pretty well. And by the time version three came out, I thought this is the best thing in the world. And I forgot all about Avid. I forgot all about linear mm-hmm. editing and uh, decided to get into that. So I fell into teaching at the same time and started teaching for Apple. Um, How did you make then, that transition? It uh, wasn't really much of a transition. I was already uh, working, um, you know, producing stuff with Final Cut on a laptop and um, I actually took a course at uh, Bay Area Video Coalition up mm-hmm. in the city. I, I decided, well, if I'm going to learn this, I'm self-taught. And I know from experience, you know, like being self-taught, you learn, you learn habits that you learn yourself, that you learn them the wrong way. I figure I better should, I should probably take this one week course um, at BayVac. And, uh, and see if I'm, you know, missing anything, I can make my life a lot easier. So while I was taking the course after the second day, I realized, and this is, you know, nothing, nothing against uh, the instructor, but he wasn't really a good instructor. Um, I mean, presentation-wise, he was one of these, you know, bookworm types of guys who would stare in the book and say, "Okay, step one, do this; step two, do that." And it's like, "Oh my God!"
1: For video production, geez.
4: For video pro- for for video post production, for you know, learning yeah. how to operate the software, which he knew well, but he didn't know how to present it well, and he didn't really have any context because he himself was not an editor. That <laughs> drove that oh. drove me nuts. So. I, I became friends with the uh, people who, who actually ran Bayvac, and I said, "Here's a you know interesting question. I already I already know more than the instructor, and I'm just you know I don't want to be you know kind of snooty about this, but do you need any teachers here? Because I actually like teaching, and I think I could probably bring something to it. You know that uh, that um, that nobody that this current instructor cannot. I actually do this for real." And I can help teach it and give them, you know, real world experience um, and say, okay, here's what you do and here's why you would do it. And here's why I did it because this is what I've done in the past in the linear world, but now it's easier doing it in nonlinear and so on and so on. Anyway, so the people who ran BayVac said, okay, and they <laughs> they actually helped me get my, apparently you need to have some kind of teaching credentials. Who knew? Um, in order to teach this, uh, uh, you teach at Bayvac, which is a what do they call it? A, a post-secondary uh, educational facility. So they yeah. said, yeah, they said, okay, here, you know, write this out, take this test, we'll pass it for you. Don't worry about it. And then, poof! Now I became a teacher.
0: Wow, so, had you ever yeah. taught before that?
4: I, I had taught when I I worked in Nashville for a number of years, and I had a friend of mine who was a teacher at Nashville Technical Academy. And uh, they had a TV studio and they wanted to teach people how to do TV production and said, can you teach? And I says, I don't know. Um, So he says, well, fine, come on in, Uh, show show people how to set up a camera in a studio, show people how to set up lights for a studio, how to do, uh, you know, placement for microphones, how to do, um, you know, set design for, you know, uh, doing an in-studio set. And can you do something called ENG, which is electronic news gathering, which is outside uh, shooting. Uh, with a camera and a little production crew and then bring it back and then, you know, cut it together. And I'm saying, yeah, well, I used to do that all the time and blah, 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 and they said, good. And um, at the time, I was working for an ABC affiliate in Nashville, and so I had most mornings free because I did the 6 o'clock and the 11 o'clock newscast. And uh, so I had the day to myself, so I would go into their studio at the, at the, at the university, uh, or the academy, sorry, shouldn't call it a university, it was too small, um, and then teach a handful of students how to do television production. Okay. So yeah, it was kind of fun. Was, I had no teaching uh, experience before that. It's just I would say, "What do you want to know?" <laughs> and they would say and Who's I,
1: that. And I suspect too, um, given your experience as kind of as a uh, senior editor, um, did you have moments where you'd have to teach junior editors or just other oh, yeah. people oh, yeah. like that? Yeah.
4: Yeah, we would hire. We would have to hire. Um, uh, other editors to fill the spots that were missing because we had, when I was working in um, in Boston, we had an edit, we had four edit suites uh, that were like going all the time. And we had like six or seven editors uh, that would work different shifts. And we had some freelance editors, um, uh, and other people who uh, come in certain days, but if they had another project somewhere else, that would leave a hole. And so our the people who owned the company said, "Well, we have to bring in you know another another editor." So they would put feelers out, and uh, luckily we were in the back bay of uh, of Boston, and there's a college there called Emerson College, which had a very good program for television and radio and theater, and uh, they would you know kick out um, students every year that were, you know, looking for work. So we would get, you know, some junior editors real cheap. Um, and so I would have to, you know, train them on how to use, uh, kind of stuff because the colleges, even Emerson college, um, would have equipment that was at least five or six, 10 years old, not the latest hardware and software. Um, back those days, um, you know, technology didn't change every hour, you know you know you could have a um, an an ed system that would last for you know a couple of years before you'd have to go relearn something. Right. but still their their college equipment was a little you know behind what we were physically using in our shop. So they would come in and they would know the concepts. They would know how uh, they want something to look. They just didn't know how to do it. so it was it was like they know how to do it. They just don't know how to do it. So I would say, okay, what is it you want to do?" And they would say, "Well I want to do a simple dissolve, blah blah blah." And I' say, okay, this is, this is, this is, it bang, boom, boom. Then I would watch them do it, and then I would leave. And so they would have to learn some stuff on their own, but they would at least get the concept. So I, I was kind of like teaching them how to do editing. Meanwhile, I still had clients that I would have to deal with too. So it was kind of kind of a juggling uh, thing with the, uh, the people who were the production managers for the company. So
1: transitioning into freelance, juggle, also juggling um, those two areas, probably wasn't, like you said, it wasn't much of a transition.
4: No, not really. No. I mean, I had to, uh, I had to do everything myself, which made it hard. And plus advertising for myself, which was even more difficult, but I did have some, uh, some people that I knew, hold on, there's a big truck going by and now they're gone. Um, when I was working for Avid Technology, um, I would have to talk to a lot of the people in the industry out here in California because all of, all of the big people like Sony, uh, Grass Valley, um, uh, who else? Uh, CMX um, was a large editing uh, company, doesn't exist anymore, um, and uh, a lot of the high tech companies, obviously, you know, in the uh, uh, late '80s, early '90s, mm-hmm. were out here in California. So I had a lot of people who I knew out here. So when I came out. Uh, I contacted them. We still used a roller decks. Um, <laughs> and I would contact them and says, listen, I'm, I'm out here now. Uh, do you know anybody who needs any, you know, you know, projects done and stuff I can help? And so they kind of like turned me on to some people like mostly medical companies. Um, a couple of educational companies and medical companies that were doing like new technology on how to do uh, vein ablation, which I can do now, but nobody <laughs> let me. <laughs> And then, you know, word spread and, you know, that kind of stuff.
1: So is that eventually how you, I mean, was that was that your first foray into, uh, I guess, the professional medical world, and did that kind of help guide you into Stanford, or was that yeah, totally
4: I, Yeah, uh, sort of. Well, I, I kind of made a couple of left-hand turns getting into Stanford, but um, not the first medical thing, because when I was in Boston, we had Mass General. That would do, uh, training stuff. We had a nursing Mm -hmm. department that, um, wanted to do techniques on how to do injections. You know, they wanted to, they started getting involved in doing video productions, um, to show students stuff that they would have to do year after year after year after year. And injecting somebody with, um, uh, with a hypodermic needle never changed, you know, for decades. Um, and so they figured, why don't we videotape this and, you know, show the demonstration once and then we'll show the, you know, the first year students, this kind of stuff. And they thought that's a revelation. And so we started <laughs> doing that. So we, so we had Mass General as, as a client uh, to do those kind of things. But yes, it wasn't until I got to California that I started getting involved in companies um, like Novasys and uh, uh, Venus um, and and other companies that did uh, medical, uh, oh, Intuit was also another company, um, that were doing uh, new tools for medicine and they wanted to, you know, produce videos uh, to show, you know, potential investors and that, that... that I kind of fell into from a friend of a friend that worked for Apple and that's how I got involved in that. Um, how I got involved in Stanford was, um, uh, twofold. Uh, I was, I was doing my own production work, uh, for companies and I was doing teaching, uh, for Apple, uh, at BayVac and, um, video, uh, rather digital media academy down in uh, Santa Clara. And there was one other, there was uh, Future Rhythms was another company that did um, teaching for Apple. They were certified to do so. And um, back in, I think it was 2011, when uh, Apple decided that Final Cut Pro was too big and only a few, few, like 20,000 people um, in California were using it and it wasn't big enough for them. So they decided to make Final Cut 10 and pull the rug out from everybody who used Final Cut Pro and made it um, iMovie Pro. <laughs> so they kind of like, they took the pro out of it and yeah. made it a lowercase p. I mean, Final Cut Pro 10 now, not to disparage them, um, has gotten much, much better. But there was a couple of years where it was just... You know, garbage. Too, too esoteric. Well, it not was so. huge drama. It, well, yeah, you Think. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was crazy. It, I remember it, it put a lot of people um, out on the street, literally. Um, I stopped teaching at Bayvac because there was no point because people who used iMovie could just figure out um, Final Cut Ten and they didn't need to teach, and uh, they had already gotten rid of the Avid system because Final Cut was was actually overtaking the Avid Media Composer. Anyway, so I started, you know, looking for extra work and I found something, um, at Slack. Uh, Slack was looking for somebody to do, um, some AV work and I figured, eh, AV is pretty easy. You know, how tough can it be? It only has two letters. So (laughs) I decided, (laughs) (laughs) so I, uh, I applied for it and wound up working at, um, at Slack, um, like two or three days a week, um, from Slack, I met a couple of people that um, worked at um, on campus uh, with the uh, ELS, um, the events, uh, uh, event services people over on uh, the main campus. And they said, Can you do some work with us too? And I was like, Yeah, okay, fine. So I met um, a couple of Ray and Mike uh, over at um, ELS uh, over on, where is it? They're over at Bonaire on campus. Mm.
0: Is that main campus?
4: uh, uh, yeah, main campus, yeah. Event Services um, takes care of all of the AV for the entire campus. And so I wound up doing some uh, freelance work for them as well. So I was working at Slack, and I was working at uh, ELS on campus. And I was doing some work at, uh, uh, there was a, um, a project at Berg Hall uh, at the time, And so we went in there and we set up all the equipment and set up all this, set up all that. And I met the person who ran Berg Hall and we got chatting and she was telling me, you know, we could really use somebody uh, for full time here because we're starting to get booked a lot. And I'm like, count me in. And there you are. History is now made.
0: (laughs) Berg Hall is the big uh, room where lectures and events happen in LKSC, the Lee Cushing Knowledge Center, which is sort of the hub of the School of Medicine. So George, you like run the event or you ran the events for all of Stanford Medicine um, for a long time. And
4: correct, seven uh, seven years.
0: And this is has been an elephant in the room. Um, but normally <laughs> at this point in the conversation I would ask someone how has life been under COVID or like how has life changed during shelter in place? And you are a truly different perspective than we've had because you got laid off Mm -hmm. when the events, when the live events stopped happening. Oh yeah. Um, That must be a huge transition. Finally Kidding. a huge
4: transition. Yeah, it was a very, it was like, you know, having having the world slipped out from underneath me, but it, but it was kind of in slow motion because, of course, at first in, in March, we were all like scratching our heads saying, wait a minute, what's going on? Who's canceling? You know, and then we started losing people left and right and um, events were, you know, like, uh, closed down. We didn't know what was going on. I don't want to get into the specifics of why we weren't, you know, informed of uh, of how dangerous this was, but uh, current administration left things kind of like up in the air, and so we weren't sure how dangerous this was. We thought, okay, we're told that it will only last a couple of weeks, so let's just lay low, but the event coordinators were a little nervous, and... When we started, you know, having to spread out and, and use a lot less people, we can have, you know, no, no more than 50 people in one of our rooms. We had to make some concessions on, well, do we have to do this in parts now? Do we have to do like a morning session, get everybody out, do an afternoon session, get everybody out maybe do a third session, get everybody out. And things changed during the month of March. And, uh, and then when it finally became clear by April, it's like, oh, okay. We had pretty much a clean slate. We used to have, if we, if you were to look at our calendar, we were booked every single day. Uh, and after a couple of weeks in March, we got booked half of that. And then by April, everything was gone. And so there were no events oh, coming right. in. So, yeah. So since there were no events, there was no need for me, plus we were all kind of like, you know, told, you know, we're, we're now doing shelter in place, which was obviously a a new concept to us. Uh, And so I sat in my office at home um, until August (laughs) and they kind of uh, decided, well, we're paying them. We may as well have them do something. So they kind of like moved me into the housing department to help, um, you know, get Uh, the students, you know, to collect their things because it was clear that we were not going to have a fall session. Um, So people had to, you know, clean out their rooms. So they needed help with uh, people being a, uh, what is it? A uh, an ambassador of COVID placement or something like that. I'm, I'm sure what the uh, what it was called, but I was okay. helping him out. Yeah. yeah, it was weird. So I didn't get a sash or anything. I was so upset. Um, <laughs> as I, you know, I, I had to walk around as people were, you know, cleaning out their rooms to make sure that they were socially distancing, that they were wearing masks, that they had hand sanitizers and stuff. I had no authority. I didn't have a, you know, a taser or anything. And um, <laughs> but they just needed to have me do something. Because, you know, they were paying me a stupid amount of money just to do nothing. And it was driving me crazy. Um, but I would keep checking in with um, with the people who ran Berg Hall. And they had no clue what was going on or what's going to happen in the future. And I kept looking at the calendar and, it, and less and less and less and less and less. Um, and they finally, in the, the end of January, they said, okay, that's it. You're out. Get out.
0: End of uh, August?
4: Yeah, that was like uh, September? in July. Yeah, right. So July at the end of July they said, "Okay, you'll July. be."
0: Yeah, <laughs> you end, said January.
4: Oh, yeah. Ja- sorry, <laughs> I need a second <laughs> cup of coffee. Um, yeah. So yeah, in, at the end of January they said, ta-ta. and uh, they said, "But you know, will we'll we'll, let, we'll you'll stay on until the end of September, uh, so at the end of the quarter, and then from you know October first, you are history. Get out." Uh, and so that's where I am, um, which is too bad.
0: And I want to talk about like the return to live events and um, the like, I feel like it's inevitable that when things open up, we'll return or at least that's my hope as a theater person. I'm right, sure you're right. also missing <laughs> my performance a lot, yes, um, I am. but yeah. you've sort of, you've just eased into semi-retirement.
4: Off of that transition, uh, eased is not the word I would use. Um, I was I was kind of like shoehorned into early retirement because I'm only sixty four. Beep. Um, <laughs> that was a nice emphasis. Um, yeah, I uh, I turned sixty four this past summer, and I, I I used to tell people that you know working at uh, working at Berg Hall was like the easiest and best job I've ever had because I know the stuff inside out is really easy. And I learned so much because every, every event is, is fantastic. It's interesting and it's magical. Um, I figured I can, you know, I can make this my last gig, but I wanted to, you know, go out, uh, go out on my own terms and, you know, work until I was, you know, either at the very least 65 or maybe even 70, because, you know, I just don't know what to do with myself if I'm not working. But um, so I kind of didn't get eased into uh, retirement uh, as as much as being kind of
0: forced into it. I guess I more meant <clears throat> being kicked in the rump, <laughs> the door, but then like by cushioning your own landing, I guess. Yeah,
4: yeah, 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 yeah. because because this, this, I had this this idea that if I knew I was going to work until I was 65, or 66 or whatever, um, uh, that I could actually train somebody. On how to run Berg Hall because it's not—it's not like a classroom. It's not like you go in there, you push a button, everything works. You have to push two buttons. Um, it's a lot—it's uh, a lot more uh, intricate because it's—it has so many different moving parts. Stop giggling. It's three buttons actually. Stop. It. Um, <laughs> Can't help yourself, can you, George? <laughs> I know. I'm no. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be good. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, being able to train somebody on how to run Burghall because it's it's pretty comprehensive. Uh, it has so many different moving parts. Sure. Um, and every every year we g me, beep beep, 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 Every year they actually get new toys and uh they upgrade systems and they add new things. Um so it's always evolving. And so I, you know, keeping up with that stuff is always a lot of fun and training somebody else, nobody could just walk in there and just say, Oh, I know how to run this because they don't know where all the things are. Uh, eventually, if they if they do, you know, start uh, like you were saying, Jess. Um, eventually, things are going to get back to you know normal, um, and events are going to start happening again. I have no idea what's going to happen. Hmm. No one has reached out. No one has you know speculated that. Uh, well, gee, once we get going again, can we you know drag George back in? Um, by that time, I just might say. Yeah, I'm good where I am. <laughs> um,
0: I'm sure this uh, early
4: retirement, as you put it,
1: oh,
3: oh, oh
0: no, my internet terms are back. Some delay. Yeah, I have a delay. Okay, I'll just go for it, George. I've had this thought ever since you telling the story of being the high school AV tech um,
4: geek. Go ahead, say it, geek. as
0: a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> AV geek, Um, that you keep talking about things like technology evolving so fast, the tools evolving so fast, and always having to teach other people the newer stuff. And then like the image of you as a teenager running the school's AV tech. (laughs) But but here you are, old enough for semi-retirement, um, and still, like running the top of the line AV system for a bird call—it's um, just an interesting juxtaposition. Maybe you're just master uh, AV tech video guy. Um, is there okay. a question? Is there a <laughs> Should, question there? <laughs> no, that was just something I'd been thinking of ever because I think of you as like the dude, the tech dude, the dude for the dude. Yeah, yeah.
4: They huh. they call me the dude. <laughs> The boot, the dude will abide.
0: The dude in the in the Hawaiian bird shirt.
4: <laughs> ah yes, yes, yeah. Yes.
0: yeah um, they're sitting okay, in the closet. So-
4: you know, I got thirty five of them sitting in the in the closet. I think I'll never wear again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so tell us what you have been doing now that you've been at home, because ah. I know you've been like getting into painting.
4: Yes, I've gotten into painting. Um, but a very, spe- a very, well, I don't want to say low tech painting, but it's, it's kind of, um, it's called acrylic pour. And if you were at, go on YouTube and just type in acrylic pour art and oh my God, you will get, you'll, you'll fall into a black hole. You'll, you'll get out in about a month.
0: Yeah. The videos and, are mesmerizing.
4: Oh, they're amazing. And it, and it's, it's relatively simple, you know, as a concept, but there are some techniques that just, you know, blow your mind. And, uh, I fell into that. I've probably spent $2,000 on, on stupid stuff (laughs) (laughs) on, uh, you know, different types of paints, different kinds of, um, ingredients. Uh, I'm building my own, uh, canvas, uh, frames because I, I do woodworking and stuff and I have some toys and tools downstairs. And um, I'm making these things and I'm having a blast, you know, just, I, I've already made, I've made probably two dozen um, pieces of art Whoa. that just are just amazing stuff. And uh, one day I'll make a, you know, I'll, I'll get a Wix page up or something like that and, you know, show the world what I can do. Uh, I already have one person who wants to commission me to do a piece of art for her. Um, and it's like, oh, okay, uh, now it's now I'm under pressure. But it's – yeah, it's a form of art that is just – it's messy as hell um, <laughs> and – but very satisfying when it works. And if it doesn't work, you scrape the stuff off and you start over again. You just use the same canvas. Um, nice. But it Have takes – Have you ever it, thought it about ta- live streaming this? The, the um, live stream – well, yeah, I get – well, I, I, there's a there's a possibility to do that. Um the uh, the preparation of doing the painting takes a couple of hours to get things ready. The actual painting itself takes five minutes, um, uh, and then it has to sit for three days. And then you then you actually seal it, and then the sealing takes another three or four days because I seal it in epoxy, and uh, epoxy takes like two or three days to cure. And then you sand mm-hmm. it and you do another layer and so on. So uh, one piece of art takes like two or three weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, so that'd be kind of a hell of a long stream. Um, so <laughs> well, just the good I'm, parts, right? <laughs> I'll just do the good parts and, uh, and I'll edit it out because I am an editor. <laughs> edit out all the dead spots. Um, I, that, I, uh, and I, and I,
2: I brought it up just because lately I've been watching, um, a couple people do live stream painting and I find it really enjoyable.
4: Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, very relaxing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of like the Bob Ross kind of thing, you know. I don't know if you guys know who oh, Bob Ross was. Love him. Of course we do. <laughs> yeah, he's sweet.
0: I don't think George that watching you paint would be very much like watching Bob Ross paint. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah.
4: I don't have the hair for it. <laughs> and I use smaller brushes. Uh the other thing I'm doing is uh, I've gotten back into music. Um uh, in a very serious way. In fact, yesterday I spent three hours with a bunch of old men like me, in the backyard of a of a drummer. Uh, mm-hmm. In his backyard, he had he had all these chairs set up, you know, six feet apart, and we all brought our amps and our uh, and our equipment, and um, we just played jazz for three hours. Uh, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. And we do that once a week online. We'll actually, you know, plug into a uh, you know a, a, an audio um, interface, uh, plug in a microphone and an instrument, and then we'll get on, uh, this software called, uh, Jam Kazam, um, and we'll meet, it's sort of like, uh, it's like a miniature meeting place, um, but audio only, and it's high, uh, it's high quality audio, so we're not getting any high compression and, and zero latency. Um, and we'll just, you know, the, the keyboard player will say, okay, let's play, um, Watermelon Man, or or play uh, satin doll, or something like that, and we'll just you know turn to our books. We all have the same book, and uh, and we'll just start playing.
0: George, uh, what them. is that software called?
4: The software is called Jam Kazam. Um, let me make sure I, I'm getting the right word because I just Cause, call it
0: that. <laughs> because uh, all the theater people, I just we've uh, had such trouble doing live yeah. virtual. <laughs> performance together because of the lag yeah because
4: zoom zoom isn't really you know up to snuff as far as you know high quality audio and although zoom has come up with a new audio um uh, interface or or software they've they've done an upgrade recently on giving you the ability to do higher quality audio with no latency you know you need to talk to you remember tain
0: yeah who used to have the
4: office right next to you he works for the educational department of zoom right now
1: that's right
0: I, uh, I right as he got that job, he was yeah. like, I ran into him, oh, I ran into him at uh, a Black Lives Matter protest on campus at the oh. med school, which is like cool. the only time I've been back to campus since shelter in place. <laughs> um, but it was right when he was transitioning and we said, hey, and he said, if you have any ideas for Zoom, like things that you know that you need, you yeah. tell me. Now it's like live synchronous performance ability
4: right 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 yeah I'm sure they have other things on their mind too but he's he, he's part of the department that deals with education so'm I'm, I'm sure he's he's got uh, his ear with the CEO you know so he can yeah. probably push some stuff along
0: so looking back on a lifetime of video production work among other things mm-hmm. what are you most proud of? Or I what's like,
4: out, or the coolest thing you ever worked on? Uh, well, one of my most proud of, first of all, is I got out alive. Um, <laughs> what am I most proud of that's that's interesting. Um, I when I was working in Nashville in the mid eighties, there was um, you remember when Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones came out with that uh, that We Are the World concert,
2: sure,
1: yeah,
4: with yeah, all the celebrities, uh, yeah, and and uh, about a year after that. Um, Nashville decided they wanted to try to do the same thing with a song called one big family. And they did the same thing. They, they got to, um, uh, they got, uh, Jerry Reed had a, uh, a production house and a recording studio that was large enough to do this. And he gathered everybody, um, Loretta Lynn, um, Lynn Anderson, uh, Ray Sawyers, the guy with the patch over his eye, and he was with Dr. Hook in The Medicine Show, Uh, George Jones, Tammy Wynette, Tanya Tucker, uh, Dobie Gray, got every big um, celebrity in Nashville got together and they did this song called One Big Family. And uh, I wound up uh, being the um, floor manager and eventually editor for this uh, project. And it was really interesting. I mean, they had the song recorded, um, you know, weeks uh, ahead of time. They did that at the, at a different studio. And they would pipe the song in, the music-wise, and then everybody, there must have been oh, 60 people in the studio. Um, and they were all the top people uh, in Nashville at the time uh, to sing the song. And then they did the same thing that they did with um, We Are The World, is that they had uh, isolation booth, for every line of the song and Willie Nelson would sing one line. Um, Loretta Lynn would sing one line, Jerry Reed would sing one line and so on and so on. And, uh, we got to, uh, to produce that, that whole thing. And that was really a kind of, at the time it was, it was, it was really a an interesting thing. Well, I have to meet all these people and they were the nicest people in the world. Um, and then we spent a couple of weeks cutting it together, and then putting it out there. They raised a whole bunch of money, and uh, and then it vanished, of course. And uh, I actually looked it up; it was it, it's online. Uh, somebody uh, posted it, um, and uh, th- that was something that I was proud of. Uh, wow, the other stuff, cool. yeah, it is c- pretty cool. Um, all the other stuff I've done. I mean, it, it was cheese grater type of uh, video production, you know, you, <laughs> you bring in something and then you spit it out and then you forget all about it. So <laughs> really not much that I, I really remember. Um, I did some educational videos uh, as part of my freelance gig um, before working for Stanford for a company called uh, Remillion. And uh, they're no longer in business, but they, um, they were teaching uh, math science and English courses, uh, in five to 10 minute little snippets, uh, using, you know, pure animation, um, uh, plus voiceover. Somebody would record, uh, a 10 minute section on how atoms work or, or how the element, uh, tables work or how to do, you know, binomials, uh, in, in math. And they would send me the script, uh, along with suggestions of what they want to see. And, um, and, and then they would just say, here's the voiceover, knock yourself out. When you get done, send it to us. We'll give you, you know, pointers and stuff. So that was kind of an, I was kind of proud of those. um, These little little snippets of education, um, yeah. you know, showing somebody how to, you know, diagram a sentence or, you know, what a gerund was kind of thing. And uh, they put those online and, you know, people would sign in and study these things. I have no idea what happened to those people. It's been like over 10 years now. <laughs>
0: Nice. Yeah, science education videos are a lot of fun to make. Oh yeah. Well, are you do you have like a are you going to have a website for your art? Well, I think plug for, like for you.
4: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well there's some stuff on Facebook, um, but I don't have a site. I mean, uh eventually I probably will. Um have to put a thing on there cuz uh, you know, I'm I am i am starting to fill the walls in the house with <laughs> all this art. <laughs> <laughs> i put so many holes in the wall uh, that eventually I'm going to have to either, you know, try to sell these or give them away. I would hate to give them away because they're actually just, they take, you know, like I said before, weeks to produce. Yeah. And they're kind of cool. Some of them are kind of cheesy because, you know, I at first I had no idea what the heck I was doing.
0: Yeah, um, I know uh, you showed me one that really reminds me of a Gustav Klimt. Oh, the yeah, you mentioned period. that. Yeah, the right, coloring right? is really neat. Yeah, well, maybe yeah. we could get a couple pictures, and once your website's up, we can put it in the episode description. George, I think we may have to have you back in future because we like barely scratched the surface uh, for what we could talk about with you. Well, once and you, you edit all the
4: spirits. crap out of there, yeah, once you edit the crap out of there, it'll be a 10-minute piece instead of the hour and a half we've already done.
0: Yeah. It's just 10 minutes of us talking about birds. Birds. <laughs>
4: Good birds. And they're, they're still out in the backyard. I hope the coyotes haven't gotten to <laughs> But all
0: right, Yeah. I, I'd be happy to I, I miss you. One of my fondest LKSC memories, or Aww. like Stanford memories, is you just oh. coming around LKSC to bug us yeah. in the three hundred suite. <laughs> Um, and I miss doing theater with you. Aww. And I'm like, I'm just heartbroken that that live events, live performance is what it is. Um, yeah, yeah. But I feel like you're finding your feet
3: and <laughs>
0: I'm happy for you. Yeah. And your paintings look so cool. Um, but maybe we'll have you back in the future if we didn't scare you off too much.
4: Nope. No, no, you didn't scare me at all. I'm having a blast.
0: Wonderful. Thank Wonderful. you so much for joining us today, George.
4: Thank you, My George. Thank you, Andrew, thank, thank you, Andrew. Thank George. you, William. Okay. It was a lot of fun. Okay. <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye, George. Hey, beep, beep. Beep, beep.
1: <laughs>
0: subscribe and review our podcast if you are enjoying what you're uh hearing here today and other days or just if you like birds <laughs> we love birds here at AT <laughs>